From 2009 to early 2017, Ben Rhodes was side-by-side with Barack Obama, helping to formulate and sell his foreign policy to the country and the world. But now, more than three years later, Rhodes is disillusioned by everything that has happened since. The rise of authoritarian regimes, the harsh and brutal suppression of dissent, and the bloody conflicts that still rip through the Middle East, most notably of late, the horrific violence between Israelis and Palestinians, a clash that has divided the Democratic Party. But perhaps nothing has left Rhodes more depressed than what has taken place in this country, with a Republican Party that is still so wedded to Donald Trump that GOP senators on Friday blocked passage of an independent commission to investigate the January 6th assault on the U.S. Capitol. We'll talk to Rhodes about his current state of depression and his new book, After the Fall, on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. It is pretty striking to listen to Ben Rhodes, a guy who, after all, was a spin doctor for a president who got elected on the promise of hope and change talk about the world and the country now uh, that, you know, when you hear him and you read what he's writing in this book, he seems uh, almost devoid of hope and um, a path to uh, changing the world back in the direction he wants it to go. And, um, you know, I got to say, as we talk, as we tape this on Friday, just minutes after the um, Senate voted down uh, the January 6th commission with um, not able to get the 10 Republicans needed to break a filibuster, uh, it seems that hopelessness uh, has been reinforced. Yeah. It, it, you know, disillusioned is, is the word, is the word you use and it's the right word. Um, it's interesting to, to go back and, and read about his tenure as, you know, Obama's chief foreign policy speechwriter, um, in which he was channeling, um, you know, that very hopey and changey Barack Obama, um, on, on foreign policy and to see him write, um, you know, those those uh, phrases that Obama used to use, uh, you know, talking about racism in this country or or, you know, or greed or, you know, terrible things that, you know, that some people do. And he would say, this isn't who we are. And then Ben Rhodes, right. Well, actually, maybe it is who we are. Or Obama used to say during the campaign, yes, we can. <laughs> you know, Rhodes seems to be suggesting, well, maybe <laughs> we can't. Um, and, uh, t- you know, it's pretty unusual uh, for someone who you know spent two full terms uh, so close to a president uh, writing a you know a, essentially a memoir, but it's a, more than just a memoir, and acknowledging in very poignant ways uh, the sort of mistakes that they made, or you know not realizing you know quite how bad things were and were and were becoming. It's like the scales coming off his his eyes and a kind of a loss of innocence. Um, it's pretty compelling stuff. Yeah. I think shell-shocked is another way to kind of describe it, to, to realize that the authoritarian playbook that it, that is uh, being run in a lot of other countries, in Hungary, in, in Russia, in China, that that playbook has a, a foothold now in the United States. Well, well more than that, having a foothold now in the United States, I think what he's arguing, Victoria, is that a lot of the forces that have led to uh, authoritarianism in those countries were in part driven by uh, innovated here. Yeah. Created here in the last 30 years, you know, with the kind of obsession with money and the overcharged capitalism and, you know, the military adventures and, you know, uh, 9-11. The, the disruption from and disinformation from social media the, sort the of technology seems to, platforms, to hypercharge. All of that. Yeah. American big tech companies 
that allowed for the massive, you know, disinformation campaigns that we've seen right. uh, around the world. But let's talk a little, just a little more about this January 6th uh, commission defeat in the Senate. I mean, in one respect, um, it is true that the Justice Department has aggressive investigations going into the perpetrators of the assault. But those investigations, which Mitch McConnell is using as the basis for opposing this independent commission, you know, only go so far. So there are certain things that we will not learn from the Justice Department investigation unless there's some incredible breakthrough in which one of the, you know, January 6th insurrectionists decides to cooperate and talk about, you know, people in Trump world he was, he was communicating with may or may not happen, but what was going on inside the White House on January 6th? What was Donald Trump doing and saying while the assault on the Capitol was going on? That was something that we've never gotten firsthand accounts of. We don't know. It's a black hole. It's something that an independent commission could have revealed. What did Kevin McCarthy uh, say to Donald Trump and what did Donald Trump say to him? That was something that an independent commission could have gotten with a subpoena under oath to Kevin McCarthy. And, you know, no select committee in the, in the Congress, um, is going to get to the, um, get to the bottom of that one. So there's a real loss to, um, to our state of knowledge about one of the major events in our history in, in recent years. Uh, that was suffered here by the defeat of this um, of this commission bill. More, but, but more than that, more than just being able to step back and, and ask the question about what Trump was thinking or doing on that day, we also lost the ability to look at the big structural problems that drove, you know, many thousands of people, the the, the disinformation cycles, the role of social media in driving it, the the big lie. A whole variety of forces are at work. So this this commission has you know, the the ability to step back and look at the big picture and not just at Donald Trump has been, you know, killed, but with the commission dying. Yeah. yeah. I mean, well, so first of all, the McConnell argument is is so specious. I mean, you know, when we did the 9-11 commission, which obviously was, you know, hugely valuable, we learned a ton that we didn't know uh, before um, and it shaped, you know, a lot of policies going forward. Um the criminal investigations into 9-11 were probably the biggest criminal investigations we've ever had in this country, sprawling investigations all over the world. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and and yet we still the country still and the Congress still came together to create a 9-11 uh, commission uh, to investigate all of the other questions that a criminal investigation wouldn't address. But let me just let's talk for a minute about, um, you know, the a Republican Party that just uh, shot this down with the exception of six Republicans who voted for for it. And it really does tie into the conversation we're we're about to have with Ben Rhodes because you know he has talked about this uh, Republican Party as being very different from the Republican Party just back you know in the 9/11 period. Uh it is you know in his view an illiberal party uh that is swiftly moving toward authoritarianism and that peddles in conspiracy theories and and blatant falsehoods and I think this this vote seems to lend credence to that characterization, or at least um, if they don't all believe it, uh, that they they are part of a party and a base that yeah. does. I mean, I, look, I, I don't want to I don't want to disagree with you too much on this, but there, you know, there isn't on the other hand, what, 35 Republicans in the House voted for this independent commission. So that's that's a sign that they're not all in lockstep on this. You had people like Paul Ryan just last night giving a very forceful denunciation of Donald Trump in a speech at the uh, at the Reagan Library. And let's remember, you did have Republicans, secretaries of state and top election officials around the country in who refused to go along with Trump's demands that the 
electoral college uh, vote be overturned or that the you know votes be thrown out, the counted votes be thrown out. So I, I don't think it's quite as bleak. I don't think the Republican Party is unanimous in its in you know staying in lockstep with Donald Trump, but you know clearly there is a bulk of it that that, that is in hock to a extremist you know uh, guy in in uh, off in Florida who makes no sense. You, d- you definitely have to wonder about those those 35 in the House or the six in the Senate who voted for the January 6th commission, whether or not they're just kind of hanging on to the last kind of stray bits of the Republican Party or whether or not they're the nucleus of a future of the Republican yeah. Party. It's it's unclear. It feels yeah. right now like they're just barely hanging on, you know, by their fingernails to this party. It, it, yeah. it is interesting. And, and it's going to be tested when um you know, Donald Trump gets out there and starts endorsing uh, primary candidates. And I think next week he's actually going to start holding his first, uh, you know, big in-person rallies. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. let's see, by the way, and if he does not run for president again in 2024, Matt Gates has stepped up and said he'll be happy yeah. to do so. Uh, of course, it, only if he's not in federal prison. With his potential yeah. vice president, well, Marjorie Taylor if you're Greene. The ma- or, yeah, if you know. you're the mayor of Boston, you can run for re-election, as I guess Mayor Curley <laughs> did. But I don't yeah. know if you could do that. <laughs> if, if you're running for uh, for uh, for president. All right. Well, anyway, uh, we got a lot to talk about with Ben Rhodes. So let's get to it. We now have with us Ben Rhodes, the former deputy national security advisor to President Obama and the author of the new book, After the Fall, Being American in the World We've Made. Ben, welcome back to Skullduggery. Hey, guys. Good to be with you. Um, so uh, a lot to talk about in your book, but I'd like to sort of start off with um, a little foreign policy and news. Yep. We just have been through this uh, horrific uh, experience uh, between the Israelis and the Palestinians yep. and rocket fire in Gaza, which really does seem to have created a rift within the Democratic Party about uh, Israeli policy, where you hear strong voices, not just critical of Israeli policy, but also calling for some form of sanctions, military sale cutoffs, other steps to pressure the Israelis. Um, you've been in the middle of this issue uh, <laughs> you're in t- for many years. Yeah. Yes, I want to yeah. get your take on what took place between the Israelis and Hamas and Gaza and also within Israel itself and what we should make of this, what appears to be a rift within the Democratic Party right now. I guess let me try to put this a, a, a new way from how I've talked about this. Uh, you know, by by the time we reached the end of the Obama administration in 2016, you know, you may remember that we abstained on a U.N. Security Council resolution that condemned uh Israeli settlement expansion and took a lot of heat on the way out the door. Uh, it was like, I felt like I was getting beat up on the way out the door. Um, By the way, and that's what Mike Flynn and company were trying yep. to get reversed during the transition. You yeah, know, exactly. Leading they to were, phone calls with the Russian ambassador. Right? That's right. Actually, yeah. it's kind of, uh, you know, patient zero for some of those scandals. But um, the reason we did that at that time is after having dealt with this issue, the Palestinian issue for eight years, it was obvious by 2016 that the Israeli government under Bibi Netanyahu had no interest in a two-state solution. He subsequently said, you know, he has no interest, it won't happen on his watch. The settlements were expanding in a way that was beginning to really eat away at any viability of a Palestinian state in the West Bank. You'd already had three Gaza wars by that time. And it felt like this is just not sustainable to to say that it's U.S. government policy to support a two-state solution and watch it basically be steadily destroyed in front of your eyes. Um, and people don't often pay attention to these issues um, in between the Gaza wars. And Trump gave such a full embrace to Netanyahu that in a strange way it made it seem like there's not any drama here anymore because it, it just feels like this thing is just being settled in terms of the Palestinians being dictated their terms of surrender, really. Um, and I think what happened this time is 
not only did you have another Gaza war, which highlighted kind of the dire circumstances that people live in in Gaza, the, the ch- killing of children, obviously, in, in Israeli airstrikes, but also just the broader, what's going on here? <laughs> you know, like, um, there, there is, you know, the, the, the old talking points about, you know, supporting a two-state solution just don't ring true anymore. And, and I think in the Democratic Party, you know, people who actually... I think a couple of things happened. I mean, one is just frustration with Bibi because, you know, over the last decade, he's basically embraced fully Trump, the Republican Party, worked against the Democratic Party. I think frustration with the circumstances uh, faced by the Palestinians. But also, I think, you know, as, as, as there's been this new activist generation that has kind of regenerated the Democratic caucus in the House, these are people who basically their politics is about structural inequity in this country and around the world. And, and the Palestinian issue fits very neatly into that worldview. Um, and so I think there's a lot of reasons why the trend lines are, you know, that we saw in the recent Gaza conflict are going to continue. And it's going to be a challenge in the Democratic Party, not in the Republican Party, because in part because of evangelical Christian support for Israel, they're all in with whatever you know, uh, Netanyahu wants to do. And yet, Ben, let me just ask, uh, I guess the question is, did you see any of these changes, the, the trend lines that you're talking about reflected in Biden administration policy? I mean, they I mean, they did seem to rely on those same outdated talking yeah. points. Yeah. Uh, they did uh, block every U, uh, U.N. Security yeah. Council statement of that would have condemned uh, what was going on there. You know, they they did not publicly call for an immediate uh, uh, ceasefire. So. You know, and yet they did get a ceasefire, uh, you know, with the Egyptians and, and yeah. doing diplomacy in the region. So so in terms of how the Biden administration handled this, are you seeing any changes at all? Not really. Um, and I'm, I was disappointed by that, uh, Dan. I mean, I wasn't that surprised um, to some extent uh, because I, I know the mindset of a White House. The mindset of a White House is don't put a lot of political capital in something that doesn't feel like it's going to get any better. Uh, we've got a massive domestic agenda we're trying to pass. We've got all kinds of things we're trying to do around the world. Um, we don't want to be seen to be putting a lot of chips uh, into the Israeli-Palestinian issue. Um, that feels like a losing bet. Um, I, I think what's frustrating to some respect for me is that at the end of the Obama administration, when you know not only was Joe Biden there, but all the, the, the key foreign policy people for Biden were there, you know, part of the reason we did that UN Security Council abstention and John Kerry, if you remember, gave a speech in which for the first time we kind of publicly put out the U.S. position on on final status issues. You know, the what, what is a two state solution and Jerusalem should be you know two capitals for two peoples, you know, th- th- that that could be a baton that could be passed to the next Democratic administration. We knew that Trump wasn't going to take it, but they haven't. They didn't do that. They didn't kind of go back to where we ended the Obama administration. They kind of went back to kind of 2009 status quo. And I think that's why you saw this kind of discordance between the, the, you know, the progressive side of the party uh, and the Biden team's response. And I think that's going to be something that they're going to have to continue to to wrestle with because, you know, it's not going away. But what what would you like to see done at this point in terms of a shift in U.S. policy? What what kind of pressure can the United States credibly put on the Israeli government that's going to change the settlements policy, that's going to change its approach to Gaza or anything else. And at the same time, you know, you do have Hamas, they're firing rockets into Israeli cities. I mean, what do you do about it? So I want to preface this by saying, this is really hard. I'm very sympathetic to these guys. Yeah, it's duh, much easier, right. much easier yeah. having sat in oh, the Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, having sat there for eight years from January 20th, 09 to January 20th, 17, I get it. Um, yeah. That said, I, I throw a few things out there for consideration. Uh, one is Gaza itself. And absolutely Hamas is a threat to Israel. Absolutely Israel does not want to tolerate a you know, terrorist group that fires rockets at its people. The problem that I see is that they've tried this kind of blockade strategy where you essentially just wall off Gaza from the the world. You don't let goods get in there. There's no freedom of movement really for the people there. That is not harming Hamas. Like Hamas doesn't appear to be appreciably weaker today than it was 
kind of at the beginning of that blockade and through successive Gaza wars, it's hurt the Palestinian people. So on Gaza itself, I, I, I do think there's space, and I hope that this administration um, does try to begin to lift this blockade, to try to try something different here for, for both humanitarian and kind of moral reasons, but also I think because the people of Gaza haven't had an alternative to Hamas, you know, because they're just, they're basically walled off with Hamas in there. And and so just trying to to have a dramatic uh, improvement in the, the circumstances for the people of Gaza um, is something we should be working on with the Israelis um, and with other partners, by the way, all these Gulf countries that, you know, uh, some of them did the Abraham Accords. Well, you know, they have a lot of money. <laughs> they could help rebuild Gaza as well, not just us. Then I think on the these other questions uh, about, um, you know, the, the Palestinian issue. I think the U.S. can be, it, it can be more public uh, in its positions. It can be open to, um, you know, the international community expressing its own positions, whether it's on something like a Gaza war. You know, these don't have to be U.N. Security Council mandated resolutions to the actual two-state solution. I get why that should be you know, be negotiated. Um, but, but you know, w- the kind of wall that we provide diplomatically from any position being taken by the rest of the world on, on these issues doesn't seem to be, again, improving the circumstance. And then I think these assistance questions, you know, one of the things that, that people like me were raising even during the campaign is, look, we're not going to cut off assistance to Israel. Like, there's a lot of reasons why we provide that that security assistance. But, you know, in other circumstances... We have requirements or conditions or kind of end use requirements that we don't want to see any U.S. assistance going uh, to finance anything around settlement activity uh, or maybe not around certain kind of military actions in Gaza. These are the kinds of questions that I think people are raising because, look, if you look at our farm military financing and, and assistance, you know, Israel is like almost half the budget, you know, Um this is a we have a lot of skin in this game, almost four billion dollars a year. Why are we preventing ourselves from doing the same thing we do anywhere in the world, which is where we have that kind of relationship? You know, uh, try to try to use it to encourage certain certain uh, policies. And what, what what's the end game here? Uh, because um, you know, it used to be when I was covering these issues uh, that we all talked about how well everyone at the end of the day knows, you know what the end game is. They know the basic contours of the peace deal. Uh, you know, Israel gives up settlements except for those, you know, kind of su- suburbs around Jerusalem. There's a land swap for that. Jerusalem yeah. is, sh- is shared. Uh, there's no right of return except for some symbolic number of Palestinians who go back to Jaffa and Haifa. You know all of this. Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The assumption was a two-state solution. And now there is increasing talk of a binational state um, being taken uh, seriously, by some in the Democratic Party, uh, by you know journalists and academics, uh, Peter Beinart notably, yeah. um, and and of course the the other the third solution is expulsion. Um, yes, right. Yes. So so where are you on this, and uh, where do you think future American administrations ought to be? So I, look, I still believe that a two state solution is the best outcome, you know, for the simple reason that while I see the arguments for kind of a binational state where everybody has equal rights. Like Dan, we can barely live together in this country as Republicans and Democrats. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, trying to envision going from this conflict for decades to to that working, you know, without severe disruptions and, and problems. Um, and, you know, never mind, you know, the, the the identity issues, right, of the Jewish state versus uh, you know Palestinian state. But at the same time, you know, the maps that I saw at the end of the Obama administration of where the Israeli settlements are. Coupled with kind of the the effort to kind of remake the demographics of Jerusalem, which is part of what instigated this last conflict, you know, literally expelling Palestinians from neighborhoods in Jerusalem, is making that less and less viable. So, I, I, look, there, you're right. There's three options, right? <laughs> there's only three ways this can go um, because there are seven million Palestinians living in the land between uh, the Mediterranean and the Jordan River. Um, either there's going to be two states. Either there's going to be a, a binational state, or there's going to be some form of expulsion or kind of second-class citizenship for Palestinians who, who happen to be within what is increasingly a kind of greater Israel. The reality is where this is currently going is the two-state solution is going to slowly disappear as an option. And then you're really just going to be left with this kind of 
terrible choice between a binational state or expulsion. That's the reality that I think a lot of us are, are warning about here. Um, so again, my preference is still two-state solution. I have to be honest about, I'm not sure how much longer that's going to be a credible argument if the settlements continue uh, in the way that they have the last you know decade or so. So I want to shift to another part of the world, which is uh, what's going on in Belarus and, and their uh, kind of pretty shocking breach of international norms last week when the, uh, the government of Belarus forced a Ryanair flight flying over its airspace down and took a dissident off of, uh, off of the flight. The conflict there seems to be escalating even today. And my question is, 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 it, is, is what happened in, in Belarus a harbinger of kind of increasing conflict and degradation of these international norms? Or is it just kind of one of these small flurries of conflict that will eventually we'll, we'll all forget within about six months that it ever happened? Oh no! I think it is very much an indicator of of the broader challenge, and and this does I mean you know this does tie to my book because I had to look very carefully at the the you know thirty years that produced Vladimir Putin, um, and I kind of settled on this idea that what he's really been up to for quite some time now is a counter revolution against the international order, against American influence, and he has kind of crossed every psychological barrier to uh, uh in terms of respecting norms right you know normally you don't annex your, your neighbor's land as he did in Crimea you don't have you know a civilian airliner shot down over Ukraine from areas backed by Russian separatists that they may not have meant to shot down but they certainly didn't own up to it and they kind of obscured it and created a bunch of conspiracy theories about it you certainly don't have them interfering as aggressively as they did not just in our election but all over the place uh recently again reports of you know Russians paying French influencers to you know tell people not to get the Pfizer vaccine what is that about that is about someone who is just trying to wreak havoc as a as a strategy of survival. And, and so why wouldn't we think that's going to lead to ever more brazen attacks on even pretty basic international norms? Like if I get in a plane in Greece to fly to Lithuania, it's not going to be grounded on a false pretense. So someone can be dragged off the plane and thrown in prison. And so I think we have to change kind of the 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 scale of our response to these things to kind of catch up to the reality of what uh, what Putin is up to, because I don't think that Lukashenko, the you know, does that uh, ground that plane without Russian knowledge. Well, not just Putin. I mean, and this is not just a harbinger. This is the reality of the world we live in today. The violation of norms and the sort of, particularly by authoritarian leaders around the world. You and I talked last year for yeah. this series we have coming up on Conspiracy Land about uh, Jamal Khashoggi, in which, um, you know, the U.S. intelligence community concludes that Mohammed bin Salman the, was responsible for his gruesome murder, and yet very little consequence for him. Um the Biden administration came in, but, you know, Biden said during the campaign, the Saudis will pay a price. They will be international pariahs. And yet when he had the chance to do something, there was like one additional sanction of a deputy chief of Saudi intelligence. But other than that, no sanctions against MBS, no serious uh, cutback in dealings with the Saudis. Um, you know, was that a disappointment to you? Yeah, I mean, I think, and again, this ties back, and I'll get to the Saudis, this ties back to escalating the consequences because, you know, part of the, the mentality of any White House, right, is that, you know, do I want to kind of provoke more instability abroad by having more consequences in Saudis or by provoking Putin more? I think the reality, though, that we have to recognize is even if you you don't, even if you're passive, they're still going to continue to to push more and more, and and the world is kind of bleeding into this authoritarian model of politics that runs counter to everything we care about, not just from a value standpoint, but increasingly our interests are implicated. So with like a Lukashenko, just don't. This guy's done. Like we're not going to deal with them anymore. Him and all of his circle are just cut off from the United States, from the financial system, from traveling here. Um, and, and we're going to support this opposition, not in like a, a, an overt regime change strategy, but just the basic point of like this, this guy's not a legitimate president. He didn't win the election that he tried to steal. Uh, and now he's breaking every norm. And so we're just, this guy's cut off. Same thing with Mohammed bin Salman. Like I, I look, I get that you're not going to take his wealth away. That guy's worth you know, over a trillion dollars if you, if you think about Saudi oil reserves and sovereign wealth fund. But 
you know, travel ban? Like what does, you know, why wouldn't you say that someone who orders a journalist to be chopped up in a consulate in a third country, you know, why not say that person can't travel the United States anymore? I mean, that, that, that kind of just even basic consequence, um, I think is something that, that a lot of us, um, you know, would have supported. So, Again, these are hard issues. Um, I don't want to suggest. I always want to caveat as someone who knows what it was like to hear advice, you know, from within the White House. But I, I, I think we have to recognize just how much this trend is. It's been kind of increasing exponentially, like this kind of undermining of any rules-based order. And because and, either you're going to try to arrest that trend and, and restore some basic norms and try to revitalize democracy, or you're kind of accepting. There's this kind of part of the world that's the U.S. and Europe and, and a handful of other countries that all agrees to play by certain rules. And then most of the world, because you know most of the people in the world live in other places, it's this kind of authoritarian future in which people don't uh, have any regard for norms. And I think it's worth the effort, at least, to try to see if you can prevent that from happening. So Ben, let's let's talk about uh, the book, and and there actually is a, a natural tie-in uh, yeah. from the story of uh, Belarusa diverting this airplane because uh, they did it because of a a dissident and journal young dissident and journalist on the plane. It struck me that uh, that that this is someone who you might have um, interviewed and talked to uh, for the book that you wrote, um, and I wanted to ask you. Uh, you you know you you traveled around the world talking to civil society activists and human rights a- uh, advocates um and you began your story in Hungary yeah. um tell us tell us why you began it in Hungary um and uh and tell us just a little bit about what you were trying to do with this book you know i i began in hungary because i had this sense when i was spit out of the obama administration after the 2016 election right of why is everything going in the wrong direction, you know, in terms of American democracy, but, you know, globally, um, this kind of acute sense of, of this building authoritarian and nationalist trend. And I felt that I could see it more clearly when I got out of the United States. Um, it's kind of like being in a dysfunctional family or something, Dan, and you need to go talk to someone else to understand what's happening. I wouldn't home. know anything about that. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, neither would I, of course. Um, so I, I was sitting with this Hungarian anti-corruption activist. Um, and we were actually ironically in the old headquarters of the, the East German government <laughs> in Berlin. And I said to him, like, well, how did you guys go from being a democracy to basically being a one-party autocracy in a decade? And he said, oh, well, that's uh, it's a simple story. There was a right-wing populist backlash to the financial crisis in 08 that ended up propelling Viktor Orban into office. He redrew the parliamentary districts to favor his party. He changed the voting laws to make it easier for some of his supporters to vote, harder for others. He packed the courts with right-wing judges. He enriched a bunch of cronies who then kind of financed his politics. Then they bought up the media and created a kind of right-wing propaganda machine. And then they wrapped this whole thing up in a kind of nationalist bow of us versus them. And us is the real Hungarians, the true Hungarians, and them is immigrants or it's George Soros or it's liberal elites or it's Muslims. And he's talking and I'm thinking, is he describing America? <laughs> is he describing what I've experienced the last <laughs> I was decade? Say, he could sounding be. eerily familiar. Yeah. You know, and so then I figured out this, what a fascinating opportunity for someone who was, you know, in the White House to go out and talk to people who, you know, or lived the the issues that I worked on and worried about, you know, and Alexei Navalny in Russia or these young activists in Hungary and young people getting into politics there, or Hong Kong protesters. And, and through their eyes, I, I've, I realized I could see better what's happening, not just around the world, but in America too. You, you go beyond saying that uh, the United States was experiencing the same kinds of you know, kind of descent into authoritarianism or or nationalism as other countries. Now, that there was this kind of global yeah. um, trend. Uh, you, you actually make the case that the United States was driving it in some real sense with our policies, yeah. our kind of overcharged capitalism, the financial crisis, post 9-11, military adventures, Iraq, all of that. So that is something that I think is going to be somewhat controversial. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you, you of course, were there when the, when the Re- Republicans were charging uh, o- Obama with with going on an apology tour uh, in the in the early days of the Obama administration. So what is your response to uh, to the, the criticism on that that, you know, is going to come? 
or make your case for it, I guess. First. I'll make the case. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I didn't you know, set out to write that. I, I set out to kind of write this book about why is authoritarianism taking root. And everywhere I went, I kind of began to detect some of the fingerprints of 30 years of American dominance in the world. First of all, I, the, the starting point, I guess I'll start with the rebuttal, which is we've been the dominant power in the world for 30 years. And we went from 1990 to 2020. How are we not somehow responsible? Like we've been, you know, much more powerful than anybody else. And this is the outcome of it. Um, I, I, I guess what I'd shorthand it this way, Dan, because th- there's a Hungary version of the story, a Russia version of the story and a China version of the story. But uh, I'll, I'll go to China and, and just say, I, I guess, the most provocative version of this thesis, which is that, you know, I had this really unsettling experience I read about in the book where I was kind of woken up in my hotel room by some Chinese officials who wanted to meet with me. I'm not even in the U.S. government anymore. And they were asking me or telling me that Barack Obama should not meet with the Dalai Lama in India, which was our next stop on, on a trip that we were on in 2017. And, and what was unsettling about that is not that message. I've gotten that message before. It's that we hadn't announced a meeting with the Dalai Lama. <laughs> so they were just like, you know, uh, unsubtly, you know, uh, uh, some, they're in either my email or the Dalai Lama's uh, or both. Um, and I walked outside and I looked at the Shanghai skyline which looks like the future. I mean, it's this kind of beautiful, futuristic, lights everywhere, people taking selfies. And and on the one hand, you see this prosperity and you're like, what an achievement uh, of the Chinese government and of the US-led order that allowed all these people to be lifted out of poverty. But then the more I thought about it, I was like, the Chinese Communist Party can feel very different from anything that's familiar to us politically. But if you take kind of the last 30 years of kind of unbridled capitalism, and the post 9-11 kind of hyper focus on, on national security as a, as a kind of foundational concept of national identity and American technology platforms that created a lot of hope uh, for empowering people, but became these kind of perfect tools for disinformation campaigns in the Russian case or in the Chinese case, as I experienced, you know, surveillance, uh, kind of total surveillance of a society. If you take those elements and just strip out the democracy from it. It is the logical endpoint of what what our interests have been the last thirty years, you know. And, and I don't see it to provoke or criticize because I also think a lot of good in the world, a lot of good in the world has come from that period. You know, a lot of people lifted out of poverty, a lot of people, a lot of human ingenuity, a lot of creation has happened. So I'm I'm not like a, a hard leftist who sees any American hand is bad. In fact, I actually think America is essential because if we get out of the game, it's just Putin and G, right? Um, But I do think we have to reckon with, we as a society came to prioritize these other things more than democracy. You know, making money, national security, the kind of endless expansion of technology, unregulated also. Can we really honestly say to ourselves, Dan, that, that we cared more about democracy than those things these last three decades? And, and if you're going to tell me that the answer is uh, yes, we care more about democracy, I was putting the final touches on this book when January 6th happened. And there's a whole major political party in this country that clearly could care less about democracy. Well, the irony, uh, of course, is that uh, a, a lot of it, at least during the Bush years, was done under the guise of uh, spreading democracy around the world, ending tyranny. Well, but Dan, that's part of the problem because that was so cynical. I mean, we invaded and occupied Iraq, something, you know, I write about in this book, like our, we never recovered from that internationally. I mean, it's funny, people here at home kind of moved on and the same people who did the Iraq war kind of went on to all kinds of successes. But the rest of the world is like, these people don't know what they're doing. And then when we, we wrapped after the WMD case collapsed, you know, that was not, the original justification for the Iraq war was not spreading democracy. The original justification was these people have weapons of mass destruction. It was only after that rationale collapsed that we had, this was a freedom agenda. Look at what's happened to freedom since the freedom agenda. Because part of what happened is the rhetoric of democracy became attached with policies like the Iraq war. And that discredited advocates for democracy around the world because it's like, well, you're not really for democracy. You're just for some American agenda. And, and, and that, that's been very damaging. Okay. So, you know, you talk about, you know, America's standing in the world and you write about that quite a bit and um, how the rest of the world is perceiving us. Let's take something very specific um, coming up this year. President Biden has decided we are going to pull out of Afghanistan by September 11th, something 
which I believe you support, ending the forever war. And yet, what are going to be the consequences for United States standing in the world if after that, the Taliban does take over? It does start executing the people who have worked with us, the translators and other government officials who have been our allies. And, you know, women are once again, uh, you know, stripped of all uh, civil rights. Um, I mean, you know, the, the, the message to the world from that seems to me to be, you know, something that we ought to be worried about. No, I, I don't disagree with you, Mike. And, and I, support it with a lot of mixed feelings for the things that you say. Um, I think, though, the issue is that's been what's happening anyway with American troops there. You know, the the trend lines have been moving in the direction that you describe with American troops in the country. Uh, And and so the, the, the basic point here is that there's been this kind of constant effort for 20 years. Well, first of all, I think there's just a basic common sensing of, you know, if you go to war, and 20 years later, people weren't even born when that war started or being sent there, like something has gone wrong. Um, but I, I think even beyond that, there's been a search for some formula that would arrest these negative trends in Afghanistan when I don't think 2,500 American troops or 5,000 American troops, um, you know, they've been there no, through no fault of their own, by the way. This is the direction things have been going in. And at a certain point, I think our our hyper-focus on this project of the war on terrorism, which has consumed trillions of dollars. And when I was in government, the bandwidth, the attention of senior officials. I mean, I I was in more meetings probably about, you know, Yemen and Somalia than China when I was in government. That's not rational, you know, given the state of the world. So at some point, I think you have to decide if there really are these kind of existential challenges out there to, to democracy itself, and, and I think from climate change as well, you've got to reallocate your, your time and attention and resources. Um, it doesn't mean that there's not a human tragedy or even a cost to U.S. credibility about what happens next in Afghanistan. But I, I, I think that on the other side of that coin, I don't know why keeping those troops there would prevent um, the continued degradation of conditions there. And I'd like to see us do anything we can to mitigate it diplomatically. I'd like to see us open up the door to any Afghan that worked with us to come come here. Um, but I think that, uh, that, that that's the, the reality that we're dealing with. I want to kind of step back to the big picture that you were talking about, which are the three kind of the, the three drivers of the kind of the illiberal trends that we're seeing globally and also in the United States, um, the uh, economy driven inequality, the um, social media and, and disinformation cycles and technology platforms that seem to be kind of driving us down hyper divisive paths. And then finally, kind of the the uh, kind of the negative impact of the war on terror and its continuing grip on kind of domestic and international policy. I I was struggling at the end of your book to figure out whether or not I was inclined to just kind of crawl under my desk in a depressive (laughs) stupor or whether or not they were actually sort of like, you know, bright spots that changes happening in these three drivers. And I'm kind of curious when you finished the book right around the time January 6th was happening where were you? Were you? Did you want to kind of get under the covers and just sort of hide for the next few years, or do you feel like there's that these drivers are beginning to change? That there's a that there's movement. Well, what I think is, you know, I I ended on something of a hopeful note. Um, I mean, first of all, because the experience of kind of looking really squarely at where things have gone wrong, kind of makes you feel more activated for what should be, um, and. You know, the hope I have is, is twofold. You know, one, people don't want to live like this. I mean, we hear all about the attractiveness of the Chinese model. It's created all this prosperity. There is one place in the world where people literally had the option, maybe two if you count Taiwan, literally have the option to, to opt in to the Chinese model. It was Hong Kong. And the entire city did not want to do that. I mean, the Hong Kong protest movement that I can immerse myself in was kind of evidence of the reality that no, people really do prefer democracy. And, and you see that every, you know, I, I experienced that in Hungary too. And, and the Russians I talked to now there's an imbalance of power in Hong Kong. So they couldn't kind of fend off this encroaching um, influence of the Chinese communist party. But, but I think people everywhere, you know, ultimately want to believe in the better story that human beings don't have to descend into kind of a nationalist, which by the way is 
the norm in history. It's right. It's not new. Like most of history is a story of nationalism and wars, not a story of democracy and equality. Um, the hopefulness is like think of where the debates are on these issues today versus where they were a decade ago. In this country, the awareness of the challenges and problems with, say, social media and technology platforms or the awareness of inequality being kind of corrosive to a society, uh, and that's you know, evident in, in the Biden agenda, um, or the awareness that the kind of national security focus of the post-9-11 wars you know, it didn't turn out the way we wanted. There's a much more evolved understanding of this and therefore space politically for much more ambitious solutions than even in 2009, you know, when I walked into the White House. And if you look around the world, there are more movements taking place, you know, in different places, Hong Kong, Belarus, but also, you know, Black Lives Matter. You see movements against inequality in places like Chile and Colombia. All over the world, there's kind of this building sense of, wait a second, this is not what we want, especially from young people. Now, thus far, those movements haven't succeeded, but that's how movements go. They have to build and build and build until it's like a flood that breaks through. And and so I, I do think the hope I find is that people are aware of this. I don't think my book maybe, you know, Dan, the funny thing about your question before is, yeah, I, I know all the predictable critics who will tell me this is crazy. What are you talking about? This is totally recognizable <laughs> to young people everywhere. Like like a, an ordinary young person in Hungary would look at my book and be like, "Yeah, that's what's going on." Even if if you know some some people on the right in this country be like, "What is he talking about? He's apologizing for America." Yeah. Let me ask you this. Then picking up on that point, because was it totally recognizable to you when you were in government for eight years and when you were advising Obama and writing his speeches? Because one of the sort of interesting themes of your book um, is, uh, and I think there's a line in there where you say, uh, this was the story we told ourselves. And yeah. a lot of it is about the narratives that we cling to for all sorts of needs. You know, the need to maintain these myths about we're the heroes, the others are the villains, or yeah. be or because, uh, you know, th these narratives make it easier to avoid uh, dealing with the huge uh, structural challenges out there. Uh, in the world. And your your boss was a masterful storyteller, and he rose to the presidency in part on his ability to tell tell stories. And your role was to, uh, you know, uh, help him tell that story, <laughs> help him tell that story to weave a lot of those uh, narrative threads uh, into his into his speeches. So how did you uh, at what point did you begin to realize that maybe um, some of these narratives were problematic and uh, did you ever start to feel uncomfortable about it, recognizing that Obama uh, also did challenge the narratives uh, in ways that a lot of other presidents, previous presidents didn't, but still he bought yeah. into them. I think that, so the two things I'd say, one is that I started to kind of really sense this in the second Obama term, you know, because I think we came in and every, the house was on fire at the financial crisis, we're in these wars, and there was a belief like, okay, we'll get the economy moving again, kind of stabilize things, and and, and things will start moving and, you know, the needle will start moving in a positive direction. And I, I think that I'm looking around in 2014 and the Republican Party in the United States had gone completely insane by then. I mean, pre-Trump, they were this, you know, Trump was the front runner from the time he got on the escalator because that's the direction the party had been going in since the, the Tea Party. Um, and, and as I kind of experienced in the book, part of it is, again, the financial crisis was a much more dislocating event for people not just economically, but I think psychologically, it was like, this system is broken. It, you know, it, we're getting screwed. And they didn't, you know, disaggregate between left and right. It was just like, whatever the established model is, 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 is broken. And so therefore, I'm going to be open to the kinds of appeals that maybe I wouldn't have been open to in the past. And the simplest appeal is a, is a nationalist appeal. But by 2014, you know, Putin is, you know, invading Ukraine. You know, ISIS is kind of speaking to kind of the nihilism produced uh, by this, you know, the combination of the war on terror and obviously the ideology uh, of people who subscribe to very radical views of, of what Islam should be. You got ISIS, you got Putin. You know, Xi Jinping has come in. He's a much more assertive character as a Chinese leader than the previous Chinese leadership. So there was this kind of sense I had of th th there's a reactionary, th there is a commonality, a common thread between Putin and Xi and, you know, the Republican Party that was, was very familiar to me even before Trump. I think the thing that I had to wrestle with and I, I do in this book and I don't know if it's maybe it's just my generation, Dan. I'm, I mean, I'm curious what you know if you guys feel the same way. But because I kind of came of age 
at the end of the Cold War. Like I, you know, I, my political consciousness was kind of late 80s, you know, and then into the 90s. The kind of inevitability of history moving in a positive direction, you know, <laughs> was baked into my Americanness. You know, um, that 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 there's progress is inevitable. Like, and, and even if there are bumps in the road, like the Iraq War, the financial crisis, like it's going to sort itself out and move forward. And you know, by 2016, it was like, wait a second, it's not inevitable. That made me. I had to question everything at that point because something about being American made me think that that was inevitable. When I what I end up at the end of the book is America is actually not about the inevitability of it. America is about the contest. And, and, and there are two stories. And you talk about the story, They're, like Obama and Trump kind of are perfect representatives of two opposing stories of what America is that have always been there. The kind of progressive story and the kind of more reactionary one. You know, you have a declaration of independence that says all men are created equal written by a guy who owns slaves, you know, like this has been there forever, you know? Um, and, and and so that's that's how I changed that that this none of this is inevitable. Each each cycle produces the, a version of the same contest. Um, okay, I have two questions uh, about incidents in your past uh, that you write about in the book. And the one one the first one is the most surprising thing uh, I found in the book on page two sixty one. In the summer of nineteen ninety seven, after my freshman year in college, I worked on the reelection campaign of Rudy Giuliani. Yeah, yeah, I sure did. <laughs> uh, tell us about that, and um, looking back on that today, how you uh, feel about it. Well, I mean, like you know, Giuliani. I mean, even when I look back now, I mean, in '97, I was uh, I was like nineteen, twenty years old, um, and you know, I, I was kind of a contrarian. You know, so having grown up in a very liberal environment, going to school in the airport side of Manhattan, I wasn't like a conservative Republican or anything, but I was, you know, I I, I kind of had a, a my rebellion was to go work for Giuliani in a way. You like but to argue. I like, yeah, you, you know, you've right. seen that with me. Um, although I think I kind of settled in a, in a certain. See that kind of a lot politics. on this show among us, but go ahead, yeah, yeah, yeah. But he was, you know, look, he was, he he always had these kind of alarming kind of anti democratic trends that I can see looking back, you know, but he was a competent guy. I mean, no, nobody was mounting arguments in 1997 that Rudy Giuliani was, was incompetent. But so today, something, a, several screws have popped loose. I mean, um, but you could see the, you could see the, the point of origin of some of this stuff even back then. You know, there, there's a kind of cult of personality that he believed in in himself. Um, there's this kind of focus on law and order could bleed into you know, pretty uncomfortable and anti-democratic things. Um, and, and I describe working on that campaign and, and, and beginning to question as I'm going around New York, um, you know, cause I was a tracker, right? I was like the guy who goes and follows the Democrats right. to see what they're saying. You were, um, you were trying to get oppo on the Democratic yeah, yeah. candidate. Ruth, Ruth yeah. Messenger, right? I, yeah. yeah. with I own it. And the, but, but I'd go out to these neighborhoods and what's funny is that I'd signed on to Giuliani like, Oh, he cleaned up the city. And I go out to these neighborhoods where Ruth Messenger was, and I was increasingly beginning to think, like, wait a second, this doesn't seem to be working for these people, you know? Um, and actually, so that was kind of a beginning of some of my political evolution, ironically, was during that campaign. Now, I didn't complete that progression. That was just planted some seeds. It took a couple of years to, to blossom. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it, 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 there's a, it's funny that I've had... There are not many of us who could say that they've worked for Rudy Giuliani and, and Barack Obama. <laughs> right. Okay. And the other part of your uh, biography, which uh, you mentioned in the book, which I had totally forgotten, is you worked on the 9-11 Commission. You were a staff member. Now, right now, um, you know, Congress, the Senate is wrestling whether we're going to get a January 6th commission. And the question is, the 9-11 commission, you know, is largely viewed as a successful um, operation in, you know, putting out all the facts about the attacks um, on the World Trade Center and the, and the Pentagon. Um, can that be replicated in today's environment for a January 6th commission? No. Um, and, and, you know, I worked for, I worked directly for Lee Hamilton, who was the co-chair of that commission with Tom Kane. Um, and I was kind of a liaison for Lee with the other commissioners and with, uh, the commission staff and with the Capitol Hill. Tom Kane was the chairman of that commission, Republican governor of New Jersey. Like there's no Tom Kane's, <laughs> like they don't exist. Like who are the Republicans? 
that we think are going to earn – are there five Republicans who are going to earnestly you – don't You don't think Trey Gowdy could fill that role? <laughs> yeah, I mean there's – I, I don't know how many – you know, like I, there's a madness – Guys, like I, and this is why, you know, I, I'm writing books I, and maybe, and it's harder for me to kind of go back into politics. There's kind of an insanity to, 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 to not accepting the evidence of the last decade. Like what, this is who the, the, the Republican party has been since the Tea Party. Like that's, that to me, that was the kind of, I mean, there was already building and I know people have pointed back to Gingrich or you can point back to Reagan and, and that's all true. But like this kind of particularly virulent, brand, you know, people that don't even value truth. I mean, I moved down to DC, you know, in 2002, you know, there, there were, there were people, people in Congress, like Richard Luger and, you know, people who I didn't agree with about the size of government and taxation, but they were like highly honorable people. Um, I, I, I tragically, like, where are they? Uh, they're none of, I mean, I like, yeah, how but, much okay, evidence do you need? Look, we, but we only have two parties in this country. And if you write off one of them as people who, you know, can't be talked to, who can't become party to our, you know, a, a governing experience, you know, what does that leave us? I mean, uh, you know, how do we have a governable country when, you know, people like you are saying, I can't even talk to these people. Mike, I, I didn't want to end up here like, I worked for Rudy Giuliani in 1997. Uh, the speeches I wrote for, I worked for Lee Hamilton, who was a, you know, about as centrist a Democrat as you get. Um, I wrote speeches for Barack Obama that were all about, we need to work together in red states and blue states. I just have to, I have to be moved by the evidence in front of me. And the evidence in front of me suggests that this is not a small D Democratic party. The Republican party is an illiberal party. It's an extremist, it's a far right extremist movement. If, if, if I was diagnosing if I was putting the, the Republican Party and dropping it into Europe, you know, it, it would be it would be on the the far right end of the spectrum. It, it you know, Orban Orban's like the closest analogy, which is why I look at it in the book. What that means is you have to beat them. I mean, I, you know, I, I, that sounds highly partisan, but like th this is a, like an existential issue. And, and but I in but in a fifty fifty country, you know, which is basically what we are, we have a fifty fifty Congress right now, a fifty fifty Senate. If the only solution is just to, you know, smash the other guy, I mean, you know, you're probably not going to prevail uh, for very long because you're only half. Yeah, but the other guy's agenda is to completely wire America while they can to entrench minority rule in this country. Um, and, and it's not smashing. I mean, they're the ones trying to smash things. Um, I, I think it's it, like the only... Republican who's won the popular vote, you know, in the 21st century was George W. Bush once in 2004. The majority, this is not a 50-50 country. It's, it's, it's kind of a 55-45 country in which so many of the rules have been rigged to favor the 45 that it's, that's creating the tension. Um, and so that's why I think, you know, these efforts around what's in HR1 of reforming our democracy is is worth more and more important than any other possible policy you could possibly propose because if you don't get that right it doesn't matter look i know what it's like to pass a bunch of stuff that then the next person comes in and dismantles i mean it, joe biden could do a lot of good but if he loses the house in 2022 and all these voting laws are, are rigged and, and then and a republican wins in 2024 we're going to be right back in the soup and it's going to be worse than the first time around and and i don't think we're taking that seriously enough in this country. Like we were like, Oh, we dodged some bullet. You know, Trump was nuts in January 6th. Whoa, close call. Like they got knocked off the horse in the election. They got right back on the Republican party doesn't seem to think that there's something wrong with January 6th, because if you, if your whole party's like the, the litmus test for being a member of the Republican party is accepting the premise that drove people to try to overthrow the government at the United States Capitol and set up guillotines on the lawn. Like we, we talk about Orban, like he's some sketchy character, which he is, he has not done anything like that. <laughs> you know, like th this has gone so far here and, and we just don't seem to have the, the kind of language to, to describe it. Do you think that the Democratic Party, that the that, that President Biden and that the leaders in the Democratic Senate share your sense of urgency about this issue? I, th I think so. I mean, I think that they're kind of looking at what is politically possible with, you know, because of Joe Manchin and things like that. 
um, and saying like, well, we, we probably can't do a bunch of this stuff. So what we can do is just, just spend, you know, <laughs> just, just, just do gigantic domestic policies that will insulate us from an electoral backlash and just kind of give us, we can keep trying until we, you know, win enough elections that we can do the, the reform of democracy. Um, I hope they're right in that calculation. Um, and it, it, you know, I fear that, that, that might not work because if you look at redistricting, we, we already lost the house in 2022. We're gonna have to actually win it back based on the projections on, on how these districts are going to be drawn. Um, but, and I think that to be fair too, as someone who's there, like I wouldn't put it all on Joe Biden, like they put it all on Obama. Part of the reason why the democratic party lost so much in those years is that people put it all on Obama. It, this is like this is like the Stacey Abrams answer. It's not just looking to to the president, the Demo- even a Democratic president to fix this. It's like at every state in every community in this country, people who care about democracy are going to have to get roll up their sleeves and do a lot of work. You know, I mean, the, and this is going to take like ten or twenty years uh, to, to to try to fix this. Well, that's, um, yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. Uh, uh, just sort of as a last question is what what are the most important uh, changes uh, you think need to be made, the kind of structural reforms that need to be done over the next 10 to 20 years to get us back to a, a place of, you know, some sense of nor- normalcy and equilibrium in, in, in this country? Yeah. And I do want to say, like, you, you know, I... I, I'm kind of sky is falling here. It's, it, you know, like obviously like some things are going well in the United States, like the economy is going pretty well. Like we've got you know, some things working for us here. That said, I think one is this kind of democracy agenda and dealing with, you know, redistricting, but dealing, getting back to dealing with money in politics, because I trace so much of this to like Citizens United and just this flood of dark money and this corruption, endemic corruption of American politics. Um, we really have to get at that. You know, and and again, obviously protecting the right to vote for people in this country. Um, at the same time, then I look at the other issues I talk about in my book. Technology, we have to regulate these social media platforms. We have to regulate the way in which artificial intelligence is going to utilize our data, unless we kind of want to live in 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 a society that you know in which we're splintered into these algorithm determined tribes, you know, that are radicalized against one another, you know? So there's a, there's a huge policy um, conversation that needs to move faster, I think, in terms of, of how we regulate, what are the guardrails we're putting around technology in this country? I, like I said, on national security, I'd like to see us kind of reorient away from this kind of hyper focus on a bunch of terrorists in a handful of countries to these bigger challenges. Um, and there are things that can be done there, I think, to, to, to combat corruption globally and to try to to revitalize uh, the democratic world. Uh, and then, you know, on the, on the economic side, I, I just think we're so long overdue for a, a correction in terms of dealing with basic inequality. Because, you know, I, I think that sense of people just feeling like they're getting screwed, you know, ironically, it's led people to the right, not the left. But I understood that a lot better after writing this book because the same thing happened in Hungary. And again, it was someone saying, you're getting screwed, but come put on the, the nationalist jersey. And you may still be getting screwed, but at least you can feel like a winner, you know? And that's what Putin does in Russia. Same thing. That's the playbook. And, and so I think that ironically, to, to, to save democracy, we have to make capitalism um, more equitable. Are, are you not concerned at all about a, a kind of a rising left-wing populism that could take root at some point? I mean, I just think about my daughters, you know, and their friends who are always calling themselves communists and seeing a- absolutely nothing good about, about, you know, democratic capitalism. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I had the experience, Dan, I, I taught a couple of classes at, at UCLA and USC. And I mean, like, I don't think anyone supported Joe Biden. And I mean, I think, you know, Elizabeth Warren was like the moderate in the race, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and Bernie was like, okay. But I mean, I don't think people realize, um, how far left, um, you know, certainly at least the people that are going to college in this country. And that's a whole other conversation about <laughs> education, but like um, how far left they're going. I think thus far, I think it's been healthy. You know, I think that like the Sanders and Warren campaigns had a very positive impact on where Joe Biden landed on a bunch of these issues and on raising some of the types of questions I'm raising. I do think that if you don't put it this way, if you don't show those people that that the U.S. government, the American democracy is capable 
of responding to what they're seeing in terms of unfairness and inequality and injustice and climate change to your daughter's generation, then they're going to, yeah, they're going to, they're going to opt out just like the right. And we're going to be in a pretty dicey situation here in this country where there's kind of a a growing chasm here. Um, So thus far, I think it's been a positive force. Um, I think that if there's, it, 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 let's just say, if if the worst scenario happens and the Republicans, and from my perspective, take back you know the House in 22 and then take the presidency in 24, even though they probably will lose the popular vote by even more than Trump did last time, I mean, young people are going to be like, this, screw this, this is not fair. Like, I don't want anything to do with this. And I don't know what kind of world we're in in that situation. It's not a good one. But I, again, I remain hopeful that that doesn't have to be the outcome. Well, I was going to say on that bleak note, um, <laughs> we're going to end, but you remain hopeful. This is this is why I wanted to crawl under the table. <laughs> yeah, we yeah, need to get we need to, yeah. we need to uh, help us get your your old boss on the podcast. He's a little, he's a little more optimistic. <laughs> he is, he is, but it's because well, he's but, a politician, right? Yeah, you know, <laughs> he has to be, I, I, yeah. I, we all like what he also said. Well, they, no, that's right, Mike, because we all have a role, right? And a role of a politician is 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 optimism. Who wants a pessimistic politician? I kind of elected you know, to kind of be a writer who could take the fact of having once been in power to try to be radically honest, (laughs) you know? Um, And, and again, maybe I'm wrong. I'm sure I'm wrong about a bunch of stuff, but I'm just, you know, I'm telling you how I see it. Right. Right. All right. Well, anyway, the book is after the fall, by the way, wasn't that an Arthur Miller play after the fall? Oh, I don't know. But what I know it is, is that after I titled it, this, I Googled it. Um, just to make sure. And there was a children's book about Humpty Dumpty. <laughs> yeah, there's that too. <laughs> I said I bought and my daughters love it, yeah. but it's kind of an, a, an eerie yeah. parallel. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> all <laughs> right. <laughs> anyway, all right. Being American in the World We've Made, Ben Rhodes, thanks again for joining us. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.